Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's broadcast of the Cape Cod Times for Tuesday, February the 23rd. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you as always from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in sunny and brisk Mashpee, Massachusetts. If you haven't had a chance to yet be outside today, it's a good day to get out there and enjoy the crisp, sunny weather. No real wind effect today, so it doesn't seem quite cold. Not as cold as the thermometer says, which when I came in here said 36 degrees. In stopping on the way in at Dunkin' Donuts, there was a young man in front of me who even had shorts on. Said he wears them all the time, and he was doing quite well today, even with his shorts. All right, well, let's take a look at the weather, not only for today along the south coast, the Cape and Islands, but throughout the rest of the week. Today here on the south shore and the Cape, we're going to have a high of 42 degrees today. As I say, it's sunny now this morning. However, we're going to get some rain and sleet in the afternoon. And depending on what kind of a temperature drop we have, if any, we could have some icy conditions. So if you or your loved one or friends are driving around this afternoon, be careful because the afternoon forecast doesn't look that great. Tonight, we're going to have some snow flurries. It says occasional wet snow and accumulating possibly one to two inches. Another report I saw said anything from a mild covering of snow up to one inch. So, but let's say between a covering and two inches max. It's going to get down to 34 degrees tonight, but snow is a definite, so they say. Now, looking at tomorrow, again, we're going to have a Kind of a miserable day with a high of 39 degrees with snow, sleet, and rain mix. So if you're going to do some things, it might be wise to get out this morning versus this afternoon and tomorrow. Now, Thursday and Friday, the temperature drops, or I'm sorry, raises way up to 50 degrees. Thursday, a high of 50, cloudy and not as cool with some afternoon rain and a low of only 44 degrees overnight. Friday, 50 degrees again, with mild and occasional rain. And Saturday, mostly cloudy, with a low of 34. So Thursday and Friday and Saturday are actually going to be pretty warm. So, But again, miserable rain and possible sleet and snow later in the week, starting this afternoon and going through Wednesday. All right, taking a look at temperatures around the Cape and the South Shore, very consistent as always. Wareham and Buzzards Bay, Sandwich 42, uh, Mashpee 43, Hyannis and Barnstable both at 42, Falmouth and Dennis are 41. Heading out to the elbow of the Cape, we have 40 degrees as a high at Chatham, 41 at Brewster, 41 at East Ham, 40 at Truro, and 40 out at Race Point in Provincetown. Taking a look at the water today, pretty mild out there in terms of wave heights, one to three feet only on Cape Cod Bay, and a water temperature of 41 degrees. 
So even with a wetsuit, may I suggest that you hold off on your swimming desires until possibly the spring. Nantucket Sound today, wow, water temperature's down to 35 degrees, so you definitely do not want to be trying to swim out there, even in a wetsuit. Again, wave heights 1 to 3 feet, wind direction west-northwest 7 to 14 knots. Heading out to the islands, Oak Bluffs and Nantucket, or I'm sorry, Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, at Oak Bluffs, 42 degrees, same thing there. It's going to be rain and sleet this afternoon, a low overnight of 35. Out at Nantucket, a high of 40, low of 35, and it's partial sun the further out into the east that we go on Nantucket. All right, friends, there you have it, kind of a mixed forecast for the weather today and throughout the week. So if you've got errands to run, things to do, be wise to get them done this morning before mid-afternoon when the possible rain and sleet comes in. All right, let's move on to page one of today's uh, Tuesday, February 23rd edition of the Cape Cod Times. Well, here, friends, on page one, we have a huge map of the Cape with scattered red dots throughout, and the article... At the headline of the picture says, At the Cusp. And underneath that it says, Cape Cod has many water quality woes, but there is hope. So it's by Heather Karen of the Cape Cod Network. And here, friends, is that article. If Cape Cod had to be defined by a single element, certainly it would be water. Surrounded as it is by ocean, sound, canal, and bay, dimpled by scores of ponds and lakes, fringed by marshes, and berry-booned by streams and rivers. Its prevalence makes it key to the region's success, but it is a, so, is a resource in peril, at least as far as coastline embayments and freshwater ponds are concerned. According to the 5th Annual State of Waters Report, just issued by the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, many of the Cape's precious waters continue to be beleaguered by poor water quality. The one exception, public water supplies. These, the nonprofit environmental organization says, remain predominantly excellent. While elsewhere, beds of native eelgrass are dead or dying, once abundant bay scallops are gone. Oxygen-sucking invasive seaweeds are replacing native species. Bay bottoms are carpeted by foul-smelling black sludge. And mats of toxic algae continually and consistently blanket many freshwater ponds, making them health hazards for people, pets, and wildlife. We've reached this degraded point, which is not any cause for celebration, said Association Executive Director Andrew Gottlieb, talking about the report's findings. But every storm cloud has its silver lining, and so too does this one, he said. While overall water quality in the Cape's embayment and ponds remains subpar since the last report card, it has not measurably worsened. Additionally, no drinking water systems fell into the, quote, poor category. Especially good news for Yarmouth, which received a lower grade in last year's report because of levels of peri- and polyfluoride alcohol substances, or PFAS, that exceeded state standards for six PFAS compounds. 
Overall, said Yarmouth Water and Wastewater Superintendent Lori Razula in response to the report, quote, we've always had good water, end quote. But in 2021, she explained just after the state upped the ante on limitations for PFAS to 20 parts per trillion, samples from three separate wells showed levels slightly above the new standards, 21 parts per trillion in interconnected wells, four and five, and 23 parts per trillion in well 10. Those three wells we turned off in 2021, and they have not been on since, she said, noting the remaining wells have all continued to meet state standards. In more good news for Yarmouth, Rosula said the town is now testing a new treatment system for the shutdown wells four and five, located on Long Pond. She expects it will go online in the next month or so, and the wells will be put back into service. So what is the State of the Waters Report? Well, in the State of the Waters Report, it's an annual evaluation of water quality in the Cape's coastal waters, freshwater ponds, and drinking water supplies. The organization began assessing water quality five years ago to raise public awareness about the issues, as well as to motivate policymakers to adopt measures that will improve water quality. Efforts on CAPE have progressed since then, too, especially with the state raising the stakes on watershed-protected rules here. We're at the cusp of seeing some of the towns putting forward some of their wastewater management products, which will help, Gottlieb said. Water quality for each type of water body was graded using parameters unique to it and based on sampling and monitoring data, and in the case of drinking water systems, towns' individual consumer confidence reports. So, Cape Cod's coastal embayment still is mostly unacceptable. In all, 90% of the 48 embayments and estuaries evaluated got unacceptable water quality grades based on data collected from 226 monitoring sites. Again, I repeat that 90% of 48 embayments and estuaries that were evaluated got unacceptable water quality grades. Gottlieb said the low water quality in embayments, as well as ponds, is mostly a result of high nutrient loads, primarily inadequately treated wastewater from septic systems. Stormwater runoff and fertilizers also contribute, though to a lesser extent, he said. This is the first year there was no increase in the number of embayments with unacceptable water quality. 43 out of 48. But the organization notes that it's the same 43 water bodies with unacceptable grades. In other words, no improvements have been observed. Part of it, at least, on the marine side, there's not much water left to give back. 43 of 48 exhibit poor poor water quality. That's pretty bad, Gottlieb said. Moreover, he said analysis shows some increase in the number and percentage of monitoring stations that began detecting poor water quality, which is indicative of further degradation. The ones that are getting worse are the ones closer to the estuaries. There's so much bad coming down from the headwaters. 
It is all encroaching further down, he said, explaining this suggests that tidal flushing, which may have been enough in previous years to clear some of the loads out and into the ocean, is not now working as well. According to the findings, only the embayments on the Nantucket side of the Cape have unacceptable water quality. The same holds true for the Buzzards Bay side, except for at Quisset Harbor. Cape Cod Bay still has the most embayments with acceptable water quality, which is four. So the study highlights a shortage of pond water quality data. Like the embayments and estuaries, the number of evaluated ponds with low water quality grades remained somewhat stable from the previous year, said Gottlieb. Some of the evaluated ponds, though, are marginal at best. In all, 139 ponds were evaluated based on total phosphorus, chlorophyll, and water clarity measures. The challenge will be the to the, with the Cape's ponds is that very few of them have enough water quality data to make it possible to actually grade them. According to the organization, the 139 ponds that had enough data represent just 16% of the Cape's 890 freshwater ponds, indicating there is an ongoing shortage of recent water quality data available for most of the Cape's ponds. More than a third of the ponds that were evaluated got unacceptable water quality grades. Through its Cape Cod Freshwater Initiative, established in 2022, the Cape Cod Commission is working toward a wider evaluation of freshwater resources on Cape with an aim to develop a regional plan to restore and to protect them. On the plus side, however, most drinking water supplies get high marks. So data from 21 public water supplies collected after treatment was evaluated, and 19 of them earned excellent grades for meeting all state and federal drinking water standards. The two that just missed rising to excellence which were the Buzzards Bay Water District and the Sandwich Water District, were still deemed to have, quote, good, end quote, water quality. According to the report, the good rather than excellent grade is based on detection of total coliform bacteria used as an indicator that harmful enteric bacteria such as E. coli may be present. The organization emphasizes that both suppliers followed up with appropriate response measures and did not detect any E. coli in their respective water supply. In addition to Yarmouth seeing a better assessment over the last report, Otis Air National Guard's water system got a better grade as well. In last year's report, it was given a poor grade because of detection of total coliform and E. coli that required issuance of a boil order. On top of the PFAS, the latest assessment found that 10 of 19 systems with excellent evaluations detected PFAS 6 in some groundwater wells, but they did meet the state standards. The findings, which cover the second year since the regulations took effect, highlight the proliferation of PFAS in water supplies and the need to effectively manage them. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, PFAA, PFAS are man-made chemicals that have been used in industry and consumer products since the 1940s. They're found in everything from non-stick cookware, water-repellent clothing, stain and wrinkle-resistant fabrics and carpets, to some cosmetics. Some firefighting foams and products that reach that resist grease and oil are also considered as such. So, spinning it all forward, there is much work ahead to address the Cape's water quality concerns, Gottlieb said, but it's encouraging to see the towns actively pursuing plans to correct problems. The really good evidence of that is the project volume that's going to be to go to town meetings this spring exceeds $600 million in eight towns with 13 various projects, Gottlieb said. Towns and their voters are doing things that we need them to do in order to turn things around, so that's a really positive thing in all of this measured misery. Beyond those measures, it will be important to protect what's left of Cape Cod's undeveloped land to keep from exacerbating things going forward. Only about 14% is undeveloped and unprotected land. It's about 60,000 acres, and about 40,000 of that is critical habitat area, he said. The call, he stressed, is to be aggressive about protecting as much of that critical habitat that's in 14% as possible over the next several years. We're not anti-housing development, but housing in undeveloped green spaces is the wrong place to put density, he said. The latest water report, said Gottlieb, really highlights the need to focus on protecting the landscape while focusing affordable housing on redevelopment and refilling in already disturbed areas. So, friends, that's the report on the water supplies of Cape Cod in the estuaries, the ocean, and the ponds, as well as the drinking water supplies of the various Cape towns. Uh, accompanying that article, as I said, is a picture, and it said this map of Cape Cod, Cape Cod shows the status of embayments monitored as part of the Association to Burp Preserve Cape Cod's annual State of the Waters report. And it goes on to explain the various dots, red and blue. So it's a pretty extensive report, and I'm sure more detail can be found at the Association to Preserve Cape Cod's website. All right, let's move on. Still staying on page one, this next article says, Former Oak Bluffs Fire Chief Charged with Filming Someone Nude. This is by Zane Razak of the Cape Cod Times staff. Here's the article. Former Oak Bluffs Fire Chief John Rose, age 53, pleaded not guilty Monday to a charge of recording a sex tape of a partner without her consent to be filmed. Rose is charged with photographing, videotaping, or electronically surveilling par a partially nude or nude persons. Massachusetts State Police detectives began investigating this matter on December 14th. Rose is alleged to have shown the partner a video recorded on his cell phone of her nude and performing a sexual act on him, said Assistant District Attorney John Wheatley, the prosecutor. He said this Monday at the Edgartown District Court arraignment, which a Times reporter viewed live on Zoom. The partner, who is in her 40s, told police she was not aware of and did not consent 
to the recording and described herself as surprised and alarmed, according to various authorities. Various attempts to later find Rose after he had been informed of the investigation were unsuccessful, according to the prosecutor. Thus, a search warrant for his home was executed on December 22nd, and investigators found rotting food in the kitchen and drawers that were open and empty. It appeared to investigators that the individual, Mr. Rose, had left quite hastily, said the prosecutor. On January 19th, State troopers learned that Rose would be flying from West Palm Beach in Florida to Boston. The following morning, an arrest warrant was granted, and he was eventually placed under arrest at Boston Logan International Airport without incident. Mark Militus, a defense attorney for Rose, said there had not been any process issued against his client as of last Friday. He was certainly willing and able to be present. He was returning to the jurisdiction. He's a lifetime public servant. He owns businesses and owns a home, said Militus, adding, I don't think there's any reason to be concerned about his appearance. Militus also said that the complaints in question were made from 2020 that were first complained about in December. Rose is next expected in court on March 25th for a pretrial hearing. He did post $10,000 cash bail later and was ordered to wear a GPS tracking advice. So what is John Rose's history on Martha's Vineyard? Well, Rose was a fire chief of Oak Bluffs beginning in 2013 until he resigned in 2020 amid an FBI inquiry into ambulance finances and sexual harassment allegations, according to the Vineyard Gazette. He was suspended from his job as a firefighter at the West Tisbury Fire Department in mid-December after a court granted a man a harassment prevention order against the former chief, the newspaper also reported. The Massachusetts State Ethics Commission investigated in 2014 whether the former fire chief had violated conflict of interest law by hiring and supervising his brother, two sisters, and a daughter from 2019 to 2013 when he was the ambulance chief. The commission resolved the matter by issuing a public education letter after agreeing with him to not hold a formal proceeding. All right, friends, there you have it. Former Oak Bluffs Fire Chief John Rose, age 53, having pleaded not guilty yesterday to a charge of recording a sex tape of a partner without her consent to be filmed. So I'm sure with a court date of March 25th upcoming, there'll be more to this story in the future. All right, let's move on. Before going on to page three, the Cape and Islands page, let's take a look at the lottery situation and the various jackpots and winning numbers of recent times. The Mega Millions is up to $262 million as a jackpot, with that drawing being today at 11 o'clock this evening. Powerball will be drawn tomorrow at 11 o'clock as well, and that jackpot is up to $145 million. So taking a look at most recent lottery results, Yesterday's number game for January 22nd. The midday drawing had these numbers drawn. 4115. Again, midday drawing for the numbers game 4115. 
staying with yesterday, Monday the 22nd, the numbers game drawing in the evening produced these numbers. 2710. 2710 for the evening numbers game yesterday. Also yesterday, mass cash. Here were those numbers. 9, 11, 14, 22, and 35. 9, 11, 14, 22, 35 for mass cash. Powerball was also drawn yesterday, and here were those numbers. 24, 25, 43, 52, 63, and a Powerball number of 21. Again, repeating... Powerball yesterday, 24, 25, 43, 52, 63, and a Powerball of 21. The most recent Mega Millions drawing, which of course nobody has won, that it goes for Powerball as well. Mega Millions drawn last Friday, the 19th of January, were these. 1, 9, 16, 17, and 30, with a Mega Ball of 17. Again, Mega Millions, 1, 9, 16, 17, 30, Mega Ball, 17. And the Mega Bucks drawing held yesterday were these, 2, 3, 8, 11, 24, and 37. Mega Bucks yesterday, 2, 3, 8, 11, 24, and 37. So, for those who continue to play those tickets, Powerball, Mega Millions, the big jackpots, $2 a piece. And for those of you that do play, I say to you as I always do, good luck, players. I hope somebody locally, and I would like to include myself in that as well, would win something big one of these days. All right, moving on back to page three, the Cape and Islands page of today's Tuesday, the 23rd of January, Cape Cod Times. There's only one article here of local interest on page three, amid a cluster of ads and pictures. And this article says, five years on, a step forward for the John Gallo Ice Arena Lobby. This is Paul, by Paul Geatley as a special to the Cape Cod Times, and it has a dateline of born. Here, friends, is the article. Plans that have unfolded over five years to construct a new lobby at the John Gallo Ice Arena along Sandwich Road next to the Cape Cod Canal have taken another step forward. The Bourne Recreation Authority is searching for an owner's project manager via legal advertising. Authority General Manager Barry Johnson, on January 10th, said the move is necessary for any construction project estimated to be more than $1.5 million. Authority members in 2019 estimated the lobby cost at $4 million. They'll assist in the selecting and act as the go-between of the authority and the firm hired to design the project, Johnson said, of the owner's project manager. Do specifications, review the construction responses, do construction administration, and final project closeout, will be the responsibility of the new hiree. So what is the Gallo Ice Rink? Well, Gallo opened in 1973 on U.S. Army Corps of Engineers property just east of the Bourne Bridge. Its finances, operations, and property decisions are closely governed by the federal agency. The rink does provide ice time for skating programs, the public youth hockey contingents, and Born Sandwich and Upper Cape Tech hockey teams. The facility also accommodates regional playoffs for the Massachusetts 
Interscholastic Athletic Association. Expanding and modernizing the rink lobby, must pass muster with the Army Corps of Engineers Real Estate Division in Concord. That review is pending, said Johnson. Our correspondence to the Corps about the lobby is in progress, he noted in a January 10 email. It goes out to Concord very soon. The local core office at Taylor's Point is very aware of the proposal, as well as the scenic park connection to the town's water system, which has been approved by the Bourne Select Board. The Bourne Recreation Authority is a five-member board with one member appointed by the governor and four elected by the Bourne voters. The authority operates the Ice Arena and Bourne Scenic Park Campground, also on Army Corps of Engineers land. The pending message to the Corps will address the lobby and sewer connection proposals, said Johnson. He also said lobby construction is a still future goal, assuming financing becomes available. Naming rights for a lobby were considered by the authority as a way to raise funds for the proposal at the suggestion of facilities director Robert Karate and supported by authority member Greg Polino. But the idea was unsuccessful. Karate managed a makerover of the Massachusetts Maritime Academy football stadium and gymnasium on Taylor's Point when he was the athletic director at the academy. Bellino, in 2019, said there were no envisioned time frames for rink lobby work to be undertaken, but there was optimism that ideas will be gained about what is the feasible, uh, if the sm- what is feasible if the small but serviceable lobby, were notably at the building infant entrance would be widened and enhanced. So what are lobby funding opportunities? Well, since 2019, the authority has secured a revised enabling act with state legislative approval that allows the board to borrow money without any underwriting underwriting financial support from the town of Bourne. Such borrowing, along with grant opportunities, may in the end play a contributing role in rink lobby construction if approved by the Army Corps of Engineers Board. Members said this last August. As planned, the rink lobby would expand to the west and east of the current entrance. It would include windows to afford more light to the interior. Karate in August said final costs were pending for a 4,500-square-foot lobby, but were initially estimated to be around $4 million. So nothing yet substantial or definite on the proposed Gallo Ice Rink a Lobby expansion, but there you have an update on what's being considered. All right, let's move on. As we approach the halfway point of our broadcast, let's now take a look at the various obituaries. This first one is of Mary F. Huffnagel. That's spelled H-U-F-N-A-G-L-E. Mary F. Huffnagel, 79, of Falmouth, formerly of Situate in Roslindale, died peacefully at the Pat Roach Hospice Home on January 15th after a lengthy illness. Daughter of the late John and Nora Huffnagel, loving sister to the late John Huffnagel, Larry Huffnagel, Barbara Snow, Ruth Bowen, Gloria Troy, Paul Huffnagel, and cherished cousin and best friend Barbara Oswald. Barry was a wonderful and generous light in the world who will be greatly missed by her sister-in-law, Jean Huffnagel, and many nieces and nephews. No services are planned now, but will be held at a later date. 
All right, our next obituary is that of Gene Pearson of Marston's Mills. Gene L. Pearson, 86, of Marston's Mills, passed away on January 19, surrounded by her family. Loving wife of the late Bertel N. Pearson, who died in 2011, and they were married for 55 years. Gene was born in Boston, daughter of the late Gerald and Joanna Van Leeuwen. She was a graduate of Roslindale High School and worked for over 42 years in sales with Macy's in Brockton and Hyannis until her retirement in the year 2015. Jean was fiercely independent and tenacious in her wish to live independently in her home that her husband had built. She loved gardening, family get-togethers, and spending time at the beach with her family and friends. Survivors include her children and great grandchildren, and various great-grandchildren. Visiting hours will be on Thursday, the 25th of January, from 1 to 2.30 p.m. in the Chapman Funeral Home and the, of the John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A service will follow at 2.30 p.m. in the funeral home, and burial will be at a later date. Memorial contributions in Gene Pearson's name may be made to the MSPCA, 1577 Falmouth Road in Centerville. All right, that was the obituary of Jean Pearson of Marston's Mills. Next is that of William Christopher Long. William Christopher Long, also known as Grampy Long, died peacefully at JML Skilled Nursing Facility in Falmouth on January 19th. He was 97 years of age. He was born on January 19, 1927 in Natick to Martin and Mary Long and spent his younger years in Hopkinton. I apologize for the hesitation there, but I just noticed that he was born on January 19th and died on January 19th. Quite, quite unusual. He was a resident of Holliston and Hopedale for many years before settling in Falmouth in 2012. He was the husband of Grace Long for 43 years until her passing in 1995. Bill was a veteran of the United States Air Force, having served five years. His professional career was in the retail grocery business. He worked many years at First National Supermarket Stores and concluded his career with Roach Brothers Supermarkets before retiring in 2012. What made Bill the happiest was time spent with his family, from his siblings to his wife and children, his grandchildren, his great and great-great-grandchildren, and his extended family members. That time spent was always his happiest time. Bill was a quiet and gentle man. He carried a quick, dry wit that was always followed by a sly smile and a laugh. He rarely had a bad word to say about anyone or anything, except Carl Yastrzemski, who was never going to be Ted Williams, so he said. Over the years, Bill introduced us to so many great times and memories that do live on. Summers on Cape Cod, beginning with Sagamore Beach, Chinese food, pizza from... Marconi's, our love-hate relationship with the Red Sox, and the Christmas lights on Ashland Street and his scratch tickets and cigars. Can't forget those. Bill is survived by children William Long and his wife Mara Long and James Mitchell and her husband Bob, Joseph Fish and his wife Kit, and son-in-law Ronald White. 
sister-in-law Sybil Long and sister-in-law Jean McGuire. Bill leaves 16 grandchildren, 24 great-grandchildren, one great-great-grandchild, and many nieces and nephews. Bill was predeceased by his wife Grace, daughter Mary Ellen White, son Peter Fish, brothers Gerald and Martin Long, Francis Long and John Long, and his sister Mary Teague. Visitation will take place on Sunday, the 28th of January, from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 584 West Falmouth Highway in West Falmouth, with a funeral service at 1.30 p.m. Burial will be private. Bill's family would like to thank the staff at JML for their kindness and compassion towards Bill during his time there. All right, friends, there you have it. Those are our various obituaries for today. All right, moving to a little bit lighter side of the newspaper today, let's take a look at the Ask Carolyn column, where writers write to Carolyn for her advice regarding their various dilemmas or personal life situations. Sometimes this can be fun, sometimes informative, other times quite confusing. So let's see what today's article brings. And here is the first letter. Dear Carolyn, ever since we got married three years ago, my husband Jim and I have had money problems. Between our rent and student loans, we don't have a lot of extra money, but Jim would waste it on the dumbest things, like paying extra to have a video game express shipped to our house when, if he waited two days, he could pick it up at a local store, or, for example, buying a power tool he doesn't even know how to use. I was going to leave him, so he had finally agreed to financial counseling. The first step was that he cannot have access to any credit cards or the bank accounts, and I can only give him a certain amount of cash each morning. So now I have to pay all the bills, even put gas in his car and ask at the end of each week what he spent his allowance on. Wow, sounds like a great life for Jim. Anyhow, Jim can only go to the grocery store if he has no more than the necessary cash and an exact list. I can see he's really trying, but I feel more like a mom than a wife because I'm the one who has to keep our household afloat while paying down the debt he racked up. I feel terrible since I do love him. He loves me, and he's trying so hard, and this is this is a kind of addiction. But it's grinding me down. I can't complain to him, and I feel disloyal complaining to every, anyone else, so it's all bottled up inside me. Are there support groups for people like me? Signed, Burdened. Here's Carolyn's response. This ought to be good. Dear Burdened, ugh, I'm sorry. This is a lot for you to carry. I'm concerned, though, that the, quote, addiction, end quote, part of it isn't being addressed. You're all just locking up the drugs. What emotional hole is he trying to fill with all of his spending, and his, is he working on that? I know you've said money's tight, but therapy solo for each of you could find help. Find lower cost options here. It's also not disloyal to confide in others about your marriage. Complete embargoes on marital information are part of what trap people in abusive situations. Be sensitive and discreet and choose someone outside your immediate circle who agrees to keep your confidences and serve as your safe place safe place to air various complicated feelings that you may have. 
And don't shield him from numbers. Include your husband in bill-paying sessions. No password access should be given, however, so he sees where it all goes. Set up a spreadsheet to record the progress toward debt freedom. Last thing, now's a great time to hit for him to run a non-financial part of your household that he's good at. For example, meal preparation, various chores, managing the calendar, or whatever. Cut into that parent-child energy by shifting some power to his side of the ledger, if feasible under the circumstances. Wow, there you have it. He not only has his... Spending completely monitored, he gets an allowance, and he can now <laughs> do the dishes, clean the house, manage the calendar, whatever. Hey, good luck with that, Jim. All right, uh, let's move on. Well, friends, here's an article, at least by the headline, that looks like it could be interesting. And here it is. It's entitled, What If Every Germ Hit You at the Exact Same Time? It's by Joseph Lorcan III, who happens to be an associate professor of microbiology and cell science at the University of Florida. And here's the article. When I was younger, I would watch Batman on my black-and-white television after school. Usually, Batman would face either the Joker, the Penguin, the Puzzler, Catwoman, or any one of his usual opponents. However, on some occasions, Batman would have to face them all at the same time. So what would happen if, like Batman, the immune system had to face all of its rivals at the same time? I am an immunologist who teaches the fundamentals of immunology to college undergraduates. My research generally focuses on factors that regulate immune responses and prevent autoimmune diseases, those being conditions where the immune system attacks your own body. As a scientist studying how we build immunity against pathogens such as the virus that causes COVID-19, understanding how the immune system combats multiple threats at the same time is immensely important to me. There's no reason why you can't come down with strep throat at the same time as when you have a cold. In fact, sometimes fighting off one enemy can leave a hole in your defenses that another opportunistic pathogen can take advantage of. Bam! Understanding the rivals. Well, the first point to consider is that your immune system protects you from. What is that that it protects you from? Well, the potential bad guys include cancer cells and dangerous microorganisms, including bacteria, viruses, fungi, and more that cause infections. The immune system must also be careful not to damage healthy cells and beneficial microorganisms that live on and inside you. You interact with thousands of microorganisms with every breath of air you take. Is the immune system facing off against all of them? Well, sort of. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to fight a battle once a rival gains a foothold within your blood or tissues, so your immune system works to prevent it from getting in the body in the first place. Your skin, snot, saliva, and tears form a critical first line of defense. That is why burn victims who lose too much skin often die from overwhelming infection. Their defensive barriers are too compromised, and pathogens then pour in. 
The immune system greatly prefers catching a microbe in snot and blowing it out of your nose or giving you time to wash it off the skin of your hands over having to wage a cellular war. Gathering an army of immune cells to fight pathogens takes a lot of energy and makes you feel awful. For example, the immune system increases your body temperature to make it uncomfortable as a place for microorganisms to live and grow. But that fever can also make you want to lie down for days. Boom! Where are the weaknesses? Well, when Batman faced multiple opponents, he would find a weakness shared by all of the opponents and target it to foil their plans. The immune system uses the exact same strategy. That is, certain microbes are considered pathogens largely because they're in the wrong place, such as inside your body instead of on your skin, and thus causing damage. Pathogens have specific parts on their surfaces called pathogen-associated molecular patterns, or PAMPS, PAMPs. Very importantly, your body does not make PAMPs. This means if your immune system comes across a PAMP, it knows it isn't supposed to be there and will mount an attack. Because the same PAMP is present on many different pathogens, a strategy to combat one PAMP can defeat many pathogens. There are molecules and cells all over your body that can recognize PAMPs and destroy any of those PAMPs are on. It's as though your immune system sets up booby traps that can only attack your enemies. Many of those booby traps are toll-like receptors. This family of molecules is located on the surface and inside of many of your cells. Once microbes contact these booby traps, they trigger an alarm that warns other cells of potential danger. In technical terms, this alarm is called inflammation. Splat! Raising an army of defenders. Whereas Batman would need to think of a new strategy to combat the Joker, the Penguin, and Catwoman, your immune system devised a plan long ago. When the virus that causes COVID-19, for example, emerged in 2019, it was something people's immune systems likely had never seen before. However, some people already had immune cells that could target components of the virus. Well, how is that possible? Well, the immune systems make many immune cells that are specific to antigens or unique and recognizable parts of cancers and microorganisms it hasn't encountered even before. This occurs through a process where pieces of your DNA randomly recombine to form unique immune cell receptors. The DNA in each of these immune cells is different from the DNA in other cells in your body. Researchers believe that each person can generate at least a trillion different combinations of immune receptors, which is more than the number of pathogens an average person would ever face in their lifetime overall. <clears throat> Although the immune system makes a lot of immune cells, most of them are not used because you're not exposed to the antigen they're made to recognize. However, when an, an immune cell does recognize an antigen, it rapidly makes many copies of itself. Since pathogens can also multiply rapidly, clonal selection allows you to rapidly raise an army to fight them. Usually, this strategy works well with one or two co-infections, such as if you have the common cold and an eye infection at the same time. But what if you were infected with a trillion pathogens at the same time? 
it would take a tremendous amount of energy and time to build an appropriate army against each microorganism all at once. Unfortunately, the immune system likely would be overwhelmed by this challenge and you would probably die. Fortunately, your immune system, like Batman, usually figures out the best way to shift a battle against rivals to its favor, pulling out a victory in the final minutes of the episode. All right, well, there you have it, kind of a humorous, technical, and informative article about how your body fights various infections and organisms and what might happen and how your body would fend off an attack by multiple invaders at the same time. All right, moving on, friends. Here's an article of national interest and regional as well. And it says, Flurry of Activity Comes on Roe versus Wade Anniversaries is an Associated Press article. And here it is. Since the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling on January 22nd of 1973, the time around the anniversary has always been marked by rallies, protests, and political pledges. This time, after the 2022 ruling that overturned the nationwide right to abortions that Roe provided, there's a flurry of activity as state policy gets decided by courts, lawmakers, and voters. It's also giving Democrats, including President Joe Biden's re-election campaign, a chance to rally voters around abortion access issues. Abortion opponents also rallied last week in Washington with a context that's different from past editions of the annual March for Life. There's no longer a nationwide right to abortion, and 14 states have bans on abortion at all stages of pregnancy. But the political fallout has boosted their opponents more than them. There were still some traditional anti-abortion rallies, including one in St. Paul, Minnesota, where an estimated 2,000 people attended, with many placing what organizers described as life-size models of fetuses on the steps of the state capitol in protest of policies that do protect abortion access. So here's what to know about general developments. Ballot drive launches here in Colorado. Battle at Drive launches in Colorado and a campaign underway in Maryland. At least 100 people gathered on the steps of the Colorado Capitol on Monday to launch a signature campaign for a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution. A cardboard sign read, quote, Someone you love has had an abortion. End quote, as state lawmakers and the Colorado Attorney General bunched around a microphone and the crowd cheered. Colorado's legislature passed abortion protection last year, but if we don't enshrine it in the Constitution, we will be at the whim of lawmakers, said Nicole Hensel, Executive Director of New Era Colorado, one of the coalition of groups behind the Coloradoans for Protecting Reproductive Freedom campaign. Colorado has become an island of abortion protections as surrounding states installed restrictions after Roe was overturned. The Cobalt Abortion Fund, based in Colorado, spent six times the amount helping people get abortions in 2023 as they did in 2021. 
Also, advocates in Maryland use Monday's Roe v. Wade anniversary to begin their campaign to support the ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution that's already on the ballot there in Maryland for November. The only other state where a statewide vote on abortion rights in 2024 is sure to happen is New York, where the proposed amendment includes protecting reproductive freedom. But similar votes are under consideration in more than a dozen states. Since 2022, abortion rights supporters have prevailed on all seven statewide ballot measures. Now, lawmakers in Wisconsin and Maine consider ballot measures. So lawmakers in two states scheduled hearings for Monday as first steps to ask voters to change abortion abortion policy. Both face uphill battles. In Maine, Democrats are pushing for a measure that would protect reproductive autonomy in the state constitution. Democrats do control both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office. And under state law, abortion is allowed at any point throughout pregnancy if it's deemed necessary by a doctor. But advancing a measure to voters would require the approval of two-thirds of both legislative chambers. To reach that, several Republicans would have to vote in favor, asking the public to vote. Over in Wisconsin, a Republican proposal would ban abortion after 14 weeks of pregnancy. Republicans control the legislature there, but Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, would likely veto the measure if it passed. Currently, abortion is available in Wisconsin until fetal viability, but there's litigation over whether an 1849 law that conservatives interpreted as banning abortion should apply. In Missouri, activists chose an amendment to support. A coalition of abortion rights supporters in Missouri decided last week that 11, that last week, which of 11 amendment proposals to support? They went with the one that would allow lawmakers to restrict abortion access only after viability, generally considered to be around 23 or 24 weeks of gestation age, when a fetus might survive outside the uterus. Decision from groups including the state ACLU chapter and Planned Parenthood chapters is one solution to a debate advocates have been having on whether to support measures that allow some abortion restrictions. The Missouri measure would allow abortion later in pregnancy to protect the life and physical and mental health of the woman. Some moderate Republicans are pushing a competing amendment which would allow abortion up to 12 weeks in most cases and between then and viability only in pregnancies resulting from rape or incest or in medical emergencies. Under Missouri law, abortion is banned at all stages of pregnancy with an exception to protect the life of the woman but not in cases of rape or incest. So the Biden administration sides with an Oklahoma hospital. In a decision made in October but not revealed publicly until this week, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services found that an Oklahoma hospital 
did not violate federal law when doctors told a woman with a non-viable pregnancy to wait in a parking lot until her condition declined enough for her to qualify for an abortion under the state's strict ban. The ruling was the latest in what's emerged as a major legal question as most Republican-controlled states have imposed abortion bans. So when do exceptions apply? In other situations, the same federal agency has maintained that hospitals would violate federal law by turning away women seeking an abortion amid medical emergencies. Pending lawsuits from women who assert they were wrongly denied an abortion address the issue. Even as the Biden administration ruled in favor of the hospital in the Oklahoma case, it's planning to help people file complaints under the law that's intended to ensure emergency health care access in such situations. Okay, there you have it, friends. Continuing debate over the abortion issue, which obviously will be a major issue come November during the elections. All right, friends, one final brief article to end today's broadcast. It says Mexico wants to probe into U.S. weapons used by drug cartels. This has a dateline of Mexico City. Mexico wants an an urgent investigation into how U.S. military-grade weapons are increasingly being found in the hands of Mexican drug cartels, Mexican's top diplomat said Monday. Mexico's army is finding belt-fed machine guns, rocket launchers, and grenades that are not sold for civilian use in the United States. The Mexican Defense Department has warned the United States about weapons entering Mexico that are for the exclusive use of the U.S. Army. Foreign Relations Secretary Alicia Barcena said, It's very urgent that an investigation into this be done. The Mexican Army said in June that it seized 221 fully automatic machine guns, 56 grenade launchers, and a dozen rocket launchers from drug cartels since late 2018. The military-grade U.S. weaponry, which cartels have bragged about and openly displayed on social media, poses a special challenge for Mexico's army, which, along with police and the National Guard, already faces cartels operating homemade armored vehicles, and bomb-dropping drones. In June, Defense Secretary Luis Crescencio Sandoval said five rocket launchers have been found in the possession of the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Four were seized from the rival Sinaloa Cartel and three more seized from other cartels. Sandoval did not specifically say the weapons were from the U.S. military stockpiles. Ken Salazar, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, confirmed Monday that Mexican officials had brought up the issue at meetings last week, and while he had not been aware of the problem, he pledged the United States would look further into it. All right, friends, there you have it. That brings us to the completion of today's reading of the various articles from the Tuesday, January 23rd edition of the Cape Cod Times. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, bidding you goodbye and wishing you a healthy and happy week. It's been my pleasure reading for you today, and I look forward to doing the same next week. Have a great day, friends. So long for now.